Welcome to Risk Roundup. If we are always thinking about the problems we face today, we have little time to left to plan for tomorrow. Irrespective of cyberspace, geospace, or space, in short, referred to as CGS, success today or in the coming tomorrow would come because of strategic thinking about how we can individually and collectively accomplish our goals proactively instead of just reacting to the current conditions in silo. This is especially essential today when we are witnessing disruptive technological changes, redefining and redesigning of the systems at all levels, new way of doing things, new industries, new way of fighting wars, bio-warfare, nano-warfare to cyber-warfare and space-warfare, shifting centers of economic power, global energy competition, and engineering breakthroughs from synthetic biology, biology, biomanipulation to nanotechnology, artificial intelligence to machine intelligence, blockchain, and so much more. These ongoing changes and challenges are so profoundly complex, they cannot be well explained only in current time frame or tactical intelligence. So the question is, are we focused on today's issues so much that we are not thinking about the coming tomorrow of cyberspace, geospace, and space? And has our very thinking become so tactical that we are losing our strategic edge? To discuss all these and strategic intelligence further, I'm honored to welcome Professor Kristen Wheaton to Risk Roundup. Professor Wheaton is a professor of intelligence studies at Marquardt University based in the United States. He is also the founder of Sources and Method Games that explores the intersection between games, education, and intelligence. Welcome, Professor Wheaton. We are Hi. so delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you so much. It is a, it's an honor to be here. Wonderful, Professor Vita. So let me begin by asking you a very fundamental question. Are we thinking about tomorrow? Um, I think that your, your introduction really said it very, very well. Uh, we don't think as much about uh, strategic intelligence as we do about tactical issues. We're very caught up in the day-to-day. Um, I think there's also sort of a, a growing question about how far out can we reliably forecast. And so what does strategy mean in this day of constant disruption and constant uh, uh, change? How, how do you think strategically about change? So I, I do think that we're probably a little bit short-sighted uh, and that there are some reliable ways to help you think through sort of uh, to, to plan a little bit more long-term than, than what we've and in the past. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we are short-sighted right now. And the circumstances have changed. The system has changed. The complex variables have changed. And the challenges of these new variables, the new security risk intelligence variables, necessitates necessitate that we think through about how to gather the strategic information and all that in a very different way because the circumstances and the systems have changed. So now while intelligence depends on information, the true sign of intelligence is not information but imagination. So when security risk from cyberspace, geospace and space merge and converge, strategic security risk intelligence has never been more important for individuals and entities across nations, its government, industries, and organizations in academia than it is now in a digital global age. So do you see nations or any components of a nation that is government, industries, organizations, and academia focusing on gathering and analysis of strategic intelligence from cyberspace, geospace, and space? Well, I would say that we do that. Mercyhurst University is focused uh, our program in intelligence studies here is focused entirely on that, um, sort of seeing strategic intelligence as the high end of the analytic art. So uh, you can imagine sort of basic skills and critical thinking and, and, and communication, frankly, at sort of the, the lower end of the spectrum. But by the time uh, our students graduate, we hope they're able to think uh, not just tactically. So I, not, I'm not suggesting that's unimportant but also to be able to think strategically about this. And so that, that's the entire goal of our program is to put out people who have that ability. Um, and I think that there's a real value the, the, the community. So we, we, we uh, send our students into three communities, the, the national security community, and not only in the United States, we've had students here from many foreign countries who've come into our program. It's not a government sponsored program, it's a private program. And so students come from all over the world to, to take our program. Uh, some of them are online and, and really uh, quite widely a, a worldwide audience. 
But, but beyond national security, we also appeal to law enforcement, both state, local, district, regional, but then also business. And I would say that about half of our graduates wind up doing intelligence in business of some sort. Uh, uh, some of the, the things you've described, geospatial and others, but also simple things like anti-money laundering or security, personal security. Uh, those kinds of jobs are also uh, the kinds of jobs that our analysts go and support organizations in. That's, that's really good. I'm really glad to hear about that. Do you see similar programs, you know, that are addressing all these different uh, variables and preparing the students for the coming tomorrow? I, I see a lot. There are quite a few programs in the United States in intelligence studies. Many of them have come along since 9-11. Um, <clears throat> we were actually founded in 1992, so we're in our 25th year. Um, but uh, many of the more newer ones are, are really very focused on national security or even uh, sub-elements sub like just terrorism or just homeland security. Um, the other thing that I think sets our program apart and really I think is the only program of its kind is the, that we are an applied program. So our, our job, we feel like our job is not to prepare someone who understands intelligence at a theoretical or a political science kind of level, but actually somebody who can sit down on day one and, and go to work as an analyst. In this respect, our program is much more has much more in common with engineering or architecture programs that, that want to teach people how to actually do their job as opposed to, to think about it, right? And I'm not suggesting those kinds of more theoretical, more conceptual programs aren't valuable. I'm only saying that our program uh, I think is really the only one I know of in, of its kind that focuses so heavily on um, the applied part of, of intelligence. And there's an enormous uh, demand for that kind of, of student. I would believe so because the, it, the way the training happens and you give the real life perspective and the real life you know, knowledge that is necessary Absolutely. for them to function as a you know, good analyst, strategic intelligence analyst, that is what everyone needs. So I'm really glad to hear that you know, they are getting that kind of training and not just you know, theoretical understanding about what the field of strategic intelligence is about because uh, there is so much, you know, strategic intelligence plays such an important role in the competitive intelligence uh, that we are that we need to have the good competitive edge, especially when we are, there's so much at stake. The entirely, you know, new designs, new industries are emerging, new way of doing things is emerging. And in that, we need to have a good understanding about the strategic, you know, intelligence, where the technology is going, what new industries are emerging, what new systems are emerging, what are the new models that are emerging. All Excellent. that knowledge is so essential. So I'm really glad that, you know, that kind of good, effective, programs are available now the, I, I was you know going through some literature I uh, it was very interesting to read that a lot of decision makers irrespective of whether they are intelligence agencies or whether they're decision makers you know across NGIO that means the industries government you know organizations and academia they all a lot of them feel that strategic intelligence is nothing but a long-range perspective is that a common you know understanding I think you're. I think you're absolutely. You hit one of the nails on the head, and that is, what is what does it mean to be to think strategically? And sort of the way we defined it is, it has to do with the sort of the resources that a decision maker has available to use. And here's the example I use in class. Imagine you are uh, you own a dry cleaning business in where I live here in, in Pennsylvania, and you own one, uh, and you're thinking about opening a second one across town. That is clearly a strategic decision for, for you. You are dedicating a lot of your free income, a lot of your free revenue, a lot of your time, a lot of, you're taking on a whole level, another level of risk to open up just one more store, one more, a, 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 a different branch of your dry cleaning business. It, you could lose everything if you get that wrong. And so you're contributing almost all of your free resources, time, money, people, to opening up this store and that that is a strategic definition uh, a question for you but now imagine the same decision <clears throat> imagine i own 10,000 dry cleaning businesses spread all across the united states in every town village city there's multiple branches of me i'm the mcdonald's of dry cleaning and i'm deciding to do the exact same thing open up one new dry cleaner that's not a strategic decision for me i very few of my free resources are going into that decision. In fact, I've probably delegated that decision down to a regional or sub-regional level to make 
to make precisely the same decision. Should we open up? Where should we open up? What should we do? And so for me, it's really important to think, when we think strategic, everybody's making strategic decisions. Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, when everyone is making strategic decisions, it is so important to have the region, that region that guides you where you want to go and sure. the kind of information that you need to be able to achieve that vision. And for that, the strategic security intelligence today necessitates understanding of what change, what is happening in the cyberspace, what is happening in geospace and space, and what are the existing and emerging technologies or existing and emerging system and changing nature of warfare or the politics uh, that is going on in not only the geopolitics, but you know, in cyber politics or you know, space politics, or what is the economic turbulence, what kind of cultural conflicts we would face, or what impact would these diverse religions will have what is going to happen because of the power struggles and what kind of risk management systems we have what kind of change management effort we have there's so much going on so do we see initiatives towards developing this integrated cgs approach to get accurate strategic intelligence so i think um two things are are really important the first one is to think uh, is to understand the difference between intelligence questions and operational questions. To say to yourself, intelligence questions is sort of, we define them informally. There's a technical definition, I'm not going to go into that. But informally, we define intelligence problems as those which are uh, critical to your success or failure. And strategic intelligence problems are more critical to your success or failure, but are about things which are outside of your control. Whereas operational questions are important to your success or failure, but are about things which are under your control. And so we can imagine what we're going to do with our production line, what we're going to do with our uh, uh, human resources is an operational question. What our competitor is going to do with his production line, what our competitor is going to do with his operational question, what the enemy is going to do in cyberspace or geospace, those are intelligence questions. And you analyze these questions, these intelligence questions, very differently than you analyze operational questions. Operational questions, you typically have good data. At, at least you know where the data comes from, so you know what the margin of error is. In intelligence questions, you have incomplete, deceptive, uh, well, in, in, incomplete, ambiguous, uh, unstructured, and frankly, deceptive, uh, quite a bit of deceptive information. And so you have to have a whole different range of methodologies for analyzing intelligence questions than you do from operational questions. And that's sort of, I'm sorry, go ahead. That's one thing, there's, there's another. Yeah, I, was just, uh, I was just going to say that, do we have effective methodologies and processes to be able to uh, sort out all that information? I, I think we do. Um, I, think I think they can get better. Uh, one of the things that we've done uh, consistently in our research agenda here at Mercyhurst is to strive to identify the methodologies that work best and then figure out how to make them better than sort of intuitive judgment. Um, and I think we've had some successes there. I think we've really pushed the outside of the envelope in terms of sort of understanding what works and why does it work. But I think the second thing is those methodologies have to be incorporated into an intelligence process that unlike the traditional intelligence process, which runs sequentially, that actually looks at intelligence and intelligence activity in a parallel process and frankly involves the human, the elements of human cognition and human weaknesses and strengths in intuition uh, more directly into that, into that understanding of how the process works. So again, it's knowing the difference between intelligence and not intelligence, and then it's knowing the difference, knowing, understanding that the processes that we have been using since at least 1947 are probably out of date and they should be replaced uh, the sequential process should be replaced with a parallel, what I would, uh, a parallel process. We've done a number of studies, over 150 studies, using this parallel process of intelligence. We find it to be much faster, uh, more accurate, and more rigorous than the, the more traditional models of how intelligence works. Well, that's that's really good point, and it's good to know about that. Now, when you say that this, there is a need for this, uh, you know, better way of doing things, better processes, better methodologies. What do you mean by that? What kind of you know changes you would like to see to have that intelligence process very effective? So we look when we look at the intelligence process, we think of four sort of sub themes, um, if you will, 
uh, I'm loose using these terms loosely. Uh, so, 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 so don't, don't be too, <laughs> don't be too aggressive with me. Um, but sort of four sort of thumb subthemes that all operate in parallel, right? So they're all going on all the time uh, from the very beginning of the process to the end of the process. Um, but what shifts is how much emphasis, in other words, how much weight you put on each part of each, each theme. Uh, and so the first theme that we think is incredibly important is how um, the analyst thinks about the problem. And we call this mental modeling. This is what psychologists call it, mental modeling. What is the model that we have in our head of the problem? And from an intelligence standpoint, from a psychological standpoint or an educational standpoint, when people talk about mental models, they talk about how you think about the problem. What we mean is not just how we think about the, not just what we know, but also what do we need to know in order to be able to analyze this problem more effectively. And that changes over time, obviously, right? Um, you know, at the very beginning of a problem, imagine a new problem comes in your door, a new question comes from your decision maker. What's going to happen in Burkina Faso uh, tomorrow? And you know very little about Burkina Faso. You don't know a lot about the dynamics, political economics. You know it's a, a poor landlocked African country, but other than that, you know very little about it. Um, and so you have this model of a poor landlocked African country, which is obviously incomplete. You know you need to know more things. You know you need to understand its economy, what are its chief exports. You know you need to understand those kinds of things in order to be able to analyze this effectively. And so as you collect information, which is the second major sub-theme, that feeds back to your model. I, collect, I go out and I search and I go to the World Bank and take a look at sort of, you know, how, what is the GDP? What are the major uh, economic drivers in Burkina Faso? That immediately changes my model, how I'm thinking about this process. Further topics for collection, right? And so those two play off of each other very rapidly uh, and your model develops over time. Uh, the, the third sub-theme, so collection of information is, is, is the second sub-theme. The third, third sub-theme is analysis. What are we using to analyze all this collected information? Because all intelligence professionals know intelligence is not information. Intelligence is the product of an anal analytic process. And early on in, the, in this process, and remember all of these things are happening together, somebody asks you what's going to happen in Burkina Faso, you, it's tempting to jump to a conclusion. And so what we see early in the process, there's not, there should not be a lot of emphasis on analysis, should be less emphasis on analysis. Uh, and one of the biggest challenges is to sort of suppress the desire to jump to a conclusion. Um, but at some point, you have enough information, your model is sort of robust enough to where you're able to sort of effectively apply the kinds of methodologies or even just your intuition to a question like this and come up with some sort of a reasonable answer. And the last sub-theme, and one that I think gets really uh, not paid as much attention to, people pay a lot of attention to a collection analysis. They don't pay as much of attention to how we're thinking about the problem and is, is it the right way and how is that changing over time? So I think that's an interesting question. But the one that I think people really don't give a lot of time to, and analysts are, are bad about this, is, is what we call production. And that is, how am I going to actually deliver this product? And while that's a very sort of almost a afterthought early on in the process, I don't think it should be. Because as I tell my students, when do you want to know whether you're going to have a five-minute briefing or need to write a 20-page paper? Do you want to know that at the end of the process or do you want to know that at the beginning? You want to know that at the beginning. And so production requirements, how I'm going to deliver this final product to the decision maker I support, actually begins at the very, very early stages. And it's important to have in mind those sorts of criteria so that when the end, when you get to the end and you're prepared to deliver it, you've sort of dealt through the entire process with that as, a, as, a, as an effort. Obviously, you put a lot more emphasis on that towards just before you deliver it, but early on, it's still important to think about production. So mental modeling, how we think about the problem, and frankly, what are our cognitive limitations in terms of thinking about the problem? Um, and uh, collection, what should we be collecting? What information do we need? What information do we already have? How do we effectively use it? Analysis, what methodologies seem to be most appropriate for the data that I have, the question I have? How do those play off against each other? As new information comes in, I might, it might open up new methodologies, new ways of, of thinking about the data. And finally, production. How am I expected to deliver this product, communicate this effectively, to the decision makers I'm supporting. That should 
impact the structure and the form of the final product because if I don't communicate it effectively, I might as well not have done it at all. Absolutely. That, that, that is the process that we use here. That, that's a good process and you're right that you know how to deliver that information that plays such an important role and because it's one thing to gather the strategic security risk data and extract information but an entirely different thing to turn that information into meaningful and actionable strategic intelligence so strategic intelligence must provide information that can be acti acted upon by irrespective of what decision makers is the government or industries or organizations and academia or uh, intelligence agencies mm -hmm. if it is going to be deemed of value for cyberspace geospace and space so uh, do you see that we have access to effective and actionable timely strategic intelligence today i think that some organizations do i think that you could be better at it um one of the things that we found is most effective uh, and we've worked with literally hundreds of real world decision makers on real world problems so my strategic intelligence class, which is again a capstone class at Mercyhurst, um, we pair up groups of students, small groups of students with real world decision makers. And so all of the in US intelligence agencies, some foreign intelligence agencies, we work with a number of foreign intelligence agencies. Um, most of the top uh, Fortune 50, the top companies, we work with them as well, as well as small and medium sized businesses here in, in Pennsylvania where we live. Uh, and a number of law enforcement agencies. So we work with a wide variety of decision makers. And one of the things that they consistently come back, because I have them evaluate the products that we deliver to them. And one of the things that they consistently tell me is that because we use a very uh, structured set of terms, that our terminology, uh, of the way we talk about things is so consistent from one report to another, it makes it very easy for decision makers to understand exactly the answer to our question to their question and 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 communicate very precisely even though it's a narrative style right even though it's not we use we talk to them right they still get from us a very clear idea of what the answer to their to their question was and they're all very appreciative of that and so i think spent here um on out what's the right way to communicate to decision makers has really paid off now because I, I mean I've literally been doing this for 14 years and I've never had anybody complain to me about how we say what we say uh, they've questioned the, the, the findings but they've never questioned to communicating uh, our findings great so there is a common language and there is a common terms and processes which is really good now what is the nature of information that today's strategic intelligence is based on well, you know, it's really interesting. Um, it, we use entirely open sources here, so we don't use any classified information. Uh, we do occasionally contact people and talk to them, so we use some primary source information. We're always very much in the open about it. We don't do any clandestine or spooky stuff here at all. We, we just don't uh, and never have. So it's entirely open sources. And what you're finding is, and I, I used to be in the U.S. intelligence community. I used to work in that community quite a bit. Um, and, and, and 20 years ago, the best information was, was the classified information. Today, I think open source information absolutely, uh, particularly on strategic questions, absolutely, uh, um, uh, it, 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 it in many cases exceeds the capabilities of any sort of uh, uh, classified information, it certainly parallels it. Um, there's just an awful lot of good, good, good information. Now there's a, a lot of garbage on the internet. I mean, we all know that, right? But it's growing so fast, and even if you say, you know, only 10% of the information is any good, it's still an enormous pool of quality information. And the real challenge for us as from an open source side is not uh, not finding information, but finding being able to find the quality information, because the answer is out there. The answer is, is quite frankly, for almost everything, there's a good, there's a good body of information on the internet at this point. Yes, absolutely. You know, I agree with you. I mean, the information is out there and it's uh, like you said, you know, we don't need to depend on the classified information to be able to make sense of it. Yeah. The, all the information is there, but to be able to extract the relevant points and to make it into an intelligence information, that is something that, you know, requires a lot of training, a lot of understanding, a lot of, you know, technical uh, expertise, a lot of, uh, yes. you know, political expertise and a lot, lot of different variables comes into play. And this strategic security risk intelligence is one of the most important of the core elements, which must be established 
by any nation or any you know large corporation or you know the people that need that kind of information decision makers to have a successful and effective security risk intelligence program and this comprehensive security risk intelligence program is critical to the success of the viability survivability and resilience of not only the initiatives that are launched by industries or you know any ngos or any academia or, or government agencies but the entire nation because everything is interconnected now and most but you will see that you know over the years most nations go through strategic security risk intelligence failures so what do you think is missing in that approach um so intelligence failures are are an interesting topic in and of themselves and i i i like to you you, you can't just look at failures that's that's kind of like looking at chess games where only the guy who played black won right you're you're missing out on half of the equation so you have to also look at 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 successes. What I think is missing from the equation is sort of a robust after action process that evaluates your process. Intelligence organizations that I've been involved with, and, and that is not, is not just US government, that's all the business organizations. They're so busy doing work, answering questions for their decision makers, that they rarely have time to sort of go back and evaluate their process. And oftentimes, even if they do have the time, they've not put into place a system for capturing the process adequately so that they can go back and, and, and improve upon it. It's very anecdotal. Um, and so one of the things we do with our students is teach them how to capture the process. Uh, it's one of the reasons why this mental modeling exercise I was talking about, we actually do that using uh, uh, um, uh, mind mapping software. So we actually make this, the students build their mental model physically using mind mapping software, compare it with each other's students' mental models to sort of resolve, uh, to at least identify, if not resolve, uh, differences in the way different analysts are thinking about the problem, and then to keep up with that model as it changes over the course of the process so that we can go back and then look at the history, see how the model has changed over time, and then once the project is over, we can come back at some point in the, in the future and say, was that the right model? Did we think about this part? If we got it right or wrong, did we think about the problem correctly? Did we get it right or did we get it wrong, but we were just unlucky? Or did we get it right, but we were just lucky? <laughs> we were really thinking about this thing incorrectly all along. So you can't improve the process until you capture the process. So that's the first step. And then the second step is to take the time out of your day to sit down and think about how did we do what, we, not what we found, but how did we do what we did? And could we improve that? Could we go back after it? It's in, in educational literature. It's called deliberate practice, and you have to have deliberate practice in order to prove other improve. Otherwise, you're just going to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. So, it's not about a failure. It's about is the system constructed such that useful feedback comes to the team regularly so that it can improve its process. Are we capturing the process? Are we discussing how to improve the process, and then we are we implementing those improvements? If you if you don't have those, if you don't have that piece of the puzzle, you're not going to ever get better. You're just going to keep making the same mistakes. Of course, and I mean, it's not even necessary that it is the failure of intelligence agencies or intelligence analysts, or it, it is a failure of strategic intelligence. Oh, it could be a policy failure. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, you know, there there are no there are only intelligence failures and policy successes, but. I'm yes. talking about just intelligence. I get that part too. Sure, sure. Because see, a lot of times the intelligence is there. Strategic intelligence is there, and it is delivered to the decision makers, irrespective of whether it's the you know government or industries or organizations or you know any kind of academia projects that are going on. So the inf the intelligence is delivered, but for the decision makers to quickly take that intelligence and you know understand its impact and change their course is sometimes you know not uh, it doesn't happen that quickly because adaptation and acceptance of the intelligence and to be able to change the strategy or the you know their course or products or services is it, it takes time and there there are so many different variables and there is a growing concern that the intelligence from cyberspace geospace and space is very compartmentalized narrowly focused uh, routines and the Every most of the decision makers or you know the industry businesses, large businesses, 
that have their own strategic intelligence department they all do these things in silo and because of the competitive nature of the business you know across nations the intelligence you know that kind of intelligence is first not shared and then second is that because the, everything is happening in silo the it's so compartmentalized that the reality of the security challenges probably doesn't support compartmentalization of the silo tactical efforts i mean if you look at cyberspace today there is, there are different sources that are being used to gather the intelligence about cyber attacks or hacking or all kinds of you know cyber crimes uh, cyber espionage that is going on in the cyber uh, cyberspace cyber world that information sometimes you know comes to some organization but it doesn't get shared to other organizations because of the competitive nature of the our capitalized system and that's where you know the strategic intelligence and you know even if you look at technical intelligence or you know competitive intelligence it all comes into play and it becomes very complex so how can any nation when there you know there is trans you know border organizations and you know there are so the the corporations are so big that is this doesn't you know look are not located in one country they are in so many different countries and there are so many interconnectedness and interdependencies so how will be able to make sense of this strategic intelligence and be able to have an effective you know decision making process from that so i think there's two answers that i can offer to that I don't think you're ever going to get away from the silos. People have very strong interest and that's what intelligence is designed to do. It's designed to support a specific decision maker in making their decisions. They don't want to share that intelligence because they want to have that decision advantage themselves. And so the silos I'm not sure are ever going to be broken, but I think there are two answers to sort of a, the, a, a broader problem that you talk about. And the first one is, and I want to go back and I talked a little bit about it earlier, but I want to reemphasize it. We actually spent two years understanding and thinking about a two-year research project thinking about how intelligence how should we be communicating intelligence to decision makers there's a lot of literature that goes ignored and i'm talking about simple stuff like how long should uh, uh you know what size font should you use on your written documents right how how wide should your lines be those kind of readability statistics are actually available, easy to do. They make the document more accessible. You're not selling your position. You're making it easier for the decision maker to understand. Those are simple examples. I don't mean to suggest that that's enough. But there is a, and we teach it here, there is a way to make your intelligence more impactful so that it, it, if it's ignored, it almost has to be consciously ignored as opposed to sort of, well, I didn't think that's what you said, kind of ignored, right? And, and you have to write it in a very consistent way. And again, there are best practices here that are based in research, not based in sort of tradition or, or, or you know, tribal lore passed down from one generation to the other. So that, that would be the first thing I would say. You can make your intelligence less ignorable <laughs> by using uh, tools and, and tradecraft, which is, and, and research, which talks about how to do that uh, without crossing the line into salesmanship, right? Which is the which is the other risk. There. The other answer, I think, to your question goes back to open sources. What we found is is that open sources, um, companies, organizations, uh, international intelligence agencies will come to us and ask us to do a research project. Um, they, they oftentimes they'll pay our students. Sometimes it's a strategic project through my class. Um, but they'll pay for this kind of a research. We'll do the research, and then they will look at it and say, aha, this tracks very closely with what we believe um, from all of our sort of special sources, classified and just unique, proprietary. And But because this was done with open sources, we can share this with anybody we want to. And so they wind up handing out our report, and then they back away from it a little bit. They say, well, this is not ours, but we in general agree with the findings, and it allows them to sort of share without sharing. Um, and we see that not just with us, but with other open source uh, organizations who are doing open source collection and intelligence. They, um, it's a good way for us to be able to talk about something at a level of detail that oftentimes matches, if not exceeds, what you can find on the classified or proprietary side. But certainly, it, as long as the ultimate finding, the core analysis is, is roughly the same as what we believe from our from our more sensitive holdings it allows us to have that conversation about the finding 
and trying to figure out collectively what we're going to do about it because we it's essentially the same thing, if, if not exactly the same thing as close. And again, that's one of the advantages, I think, an open source program, a robust open source program within any, if I were a new, brand new country and I wanted to have an intelligence agency, I would definitely have one to do stuff for me but I'd also want to have a robust open source capability because that makes it easy for me to share information with other countries um, that that uh, the classified guys kind of also agree with. And that, that would be a way around it. The other, the last thing, and I was just thinking about this a little earlier, um, and it goes back to your questions about effective methods and processes. And I think that there is uh, the possibility, I haven't seen it yet, but I think there is the possibility for analysts in particular to have a way of talking about methods and processes that work um, be, that, that goes beyond uh, um, what the findings of our analysis are, right? So in other words, I know this technique works with this particular kind of problem. Sharing that is much less sensitive typically than sharing what I actually found when I applied it because that's the piece that the decision maker needs to make those strategic decisions. It's not the piece, but but it's not really, there's nothing, normally, sometimes there are, sometimes there are very highly technical uh, methodologies involved, and, and they're obviously classified or at least proprietary. But to the extent that there aren't, I think that's something that analysts could be talking about. For example, the stuff that you and I were just talking about in terms of how to communicate, all of that's from open source. Not, none of that came from, none of that's, that's available to anybody who has, you know, any sort of decent research library available to them. I think there's a couple of solutions, but you're never going to completely get away from the silos, in my opinion. So it seems, you know, so is everyone telling that I hope that we develop that kind of uh, system, shared system, because at the end of the day, secure, all the security risk valuables, they are so interconnected and there are so many interdependencies. And even if, if everyone, you know, works in silo, then, you know, that is not going to be possible for the national security or for uh, you know the greater good of the humanity there are so many risks emerging in cyberspace and space See, so far in geospace was very different but cyberspace is entirely different and the space initiatives are also entirely different where even one you know risk strategic intelligence failure uh, one security risk failure you know that would impact the whole uh, overall humanity everyone will be impacted so i think you know in the coming years we will need to come up with an effective process so that we can you know break these silos and everyone can work together because the reality of the uh, security risk the nature of the security risk coming our way are very very different but there's also another you know point that uh, you know, troubles a lot of people. And uh, that is about the politicization of the strategic intelligence. The data is the same, the intelligence is the same, but how that gets interpreted based on the ideology, based on the decision makers, or based on, you know, who is looking at that, that is, you know, entirely different. So how to prevent that? Yeah, I, you know, the, the question you're asking is, is incredibly challenging. I'm not sure that there's a a sing there's certainly not a simple solution to that. Um, one of the things I encourage students to do is to have conversations with decision makers about what are the limits and capabilities of intelligence. Again, uh, a lot of uh, decision makers have very little experience with, with real intelligence and what it really can and can't do. And there's no way to explain that in the heat of the moment. You have to have that conversation beforehand. You have to develop that, that layer of trust and the decision maker has to have some understanding of what there is this. But most decision makers have been informed by Hollywood, right? Not not by what what really is possible and really isn't. And so it's it's and unfortunately, it's the intelligence professional's job in my mind. I, I don't think it should be this way, but in fact, this is the way it actually is. It's the intelligence professional's job to inform that decision maker. You have to go to your boss, basically, and say, look, this is what I can do. This is what I can, can't do. This is how I'm going to communicate to you. These are, these are the things that I have the capacity. I'm happy to, you're the boss, so you get to tell me what to do. But frankly, some of the things, you know, if I can't do it, if it's not possible, not within the realm of possibility, uh, it's not possible, right? It's not possible. And, and there, I think Hollywood has created some expectations regarding Intel, particularly at a national level. Um, that in many cases are unrealistic. Uh, so I think you it's an education process, but going back 
beyond that, right? Going all the way back to childhood, how do you raise a critical thinker? How do you raise the days of us needing students that can reliably recite and wrote, memorize, you know, certain tasks are, are well behind us, certainly at the at these sort of strategic problems. You need good, solid, critical thinkers, and that's that's a function of the education system that you have as to what extent that's prized as a, over sort of rote memorization. I'm not suggesting there aren't some things you don't need to memorize, you do, um, but frankly, uh, it is a it, it is a problem. I, I've dealt with a number of, of uh, uh, been in a number of foreign countries, a number of places where no matter how good the information was, they could not see beyond their own history uh, in interpreting that information. And they saw everything through this historical lens that really allowed for no other answer than the answer they got. They, they would have, the information they collected really didn't do them any good. They already knew the answer before they collected the information. Very true. And, and that's frustrating because it's very difficult to change that. And we, I'm not suggesting it's only, we see that in the United States. It's, it's very obvious. Um, uh, it's very difficult to, to, to address that other than when they're seven years old as opposed to when they're in charge. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a skill that you learn over a lifetime. It's not typically a skill that you can acquire, you know, in, in, in a boardroom. Yes, very true, very true. And now another important uh, fact is that so far we were thinking about, you know, strategic intelligence or uh, competition intelligence from perspective that, you know, let's look at the, across our geographical boundaries, you know, let's not look within our nation. These are all external challenges or external security threats that are coming our way because of the way we were looking at the enemies that they would do something and you know they would uh, we would our country would get impacted but that is not the case anymore because now we rely on both internal and external strategic security intelligence data because it's not just about what enemies or what other countries are doing it's about what ideas innovations and products are emerging technology that is emerging even within our nation, not just you know across our geog nation's geographical boundaries, but what is happening in geospace? What is happening in cyberspace? What are com what is the computer code and connected computers, uh, you know, doing so that you know the whole we have very different way of doing things emerging that would uh, impact our existing industry so significantly, even our governments. You know what what kind of the new synthetic biology, you know, what kind of new uh, weapons, bioweapons will be created and how would we, you know, be able to prevent that. All that intelligence doesn't necessarily have to come from across our nation's geographical boundaries. It could be even within our, you know, own nation's uh, geographical uh, bound within our nation. So uh, this whole perception that nations should rely on just, you know, the strategic intelligence emerging from the external sources or the external other nations for our welfare, that is, I think, very outdated. Do you see that it's enough today in a digital global age and especially when we are on the stepping stone to the space age? Well, I do. On, I do. Um, I'm not sure I'm qualified to sort of comment on sort of the larger policy implications of uh, of, of what you're talking about, but I will say that intelligence has always been about understanding the environment in which you're living in. And in, in years, decades, centuries past, that environment was constrained. It was geographically constrained by a lack of roads or rivers or mountains or, or whatnot. Um, but you're absolutely right in that the, the environment in which we all operate, the mere fact that I'm able to have a, a video conference with you today uh, suggests that the environment in which we're operating is, for every single human on the planet, much larger than it has ever historically been and, and growing in leaps and bounds. My, my students routinely reach out and talk to people in foreign countries or interview, uh, you know, refugee workers in the field in Africa or in the Middle East or, or wherever to talk to them, send them, just the mere fact that we can communicate by email in seconds rather than uh, snail mail in days or weeks. That's expanded everybody's environment. And so you're, you're right to say that, that borders and some of the traditional ways of thinking about our environment and how we define the environment in which we're operating in don't seem to make a lot of sense in this, in this day and age. And so we need to really rethink about what does it mean to, what is the environment we, we care about? 
And as that grows, our intelligence concerns control. Because if you remember the definition I gave you, it's it's sort of things that are uh, important to our success or failure, but are outside of our control. Well, everything other than ourselves in our environment is outside of our control. And so just this proliferation of, of what I would call intelligence questions. Uh, for every man, woman, and child on the planet, much less uh, um, states and companies and law enforcement agencies and, and other organizations. So uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's a bigger it's, it's a bigger problem and it's growing bigger every day. And so again, when it comes to the environment, um, uh, you know, the intelligence process, the intelligence question has always been about sort of understanding the environment in which we operate. And that environment has exploded in, in just a very short period of time. I mean, traditionally the environment was restricted by geography. It was restricted by rivers and mountains. It was re restricted by our ability to communicate with each other. That, that has changed in just my lifetime, right? It has changed enormously. The mere fact that we can do what we're doing today and have a, a communication across a, a video communication, it wasn't even dreamed of when I was a child. It was, it was sort of a, a fairy tale when I was a kid. So today it's, uh, it, it's out there and that has made uh, intelligence questions for everyone uh, to be much larger, much bigger space than it ever has been before. And it now crosses geographical boundaries and uh, uh, traditional boundaries much, much more readily than it ever has before. And I, I, think, that's a, I think that's a real problem. There is, there is a problem and that, that requires a new way of thinking. Just like, you know, every business, every innovator, every new uh, science, every scientist, you know, each scientist, they are trying to look at things in a different way because so far the approach was that the military intelligence, if you look at it, or, you know, national security intelligence, th that was more for, for a means of preservation. That we didn't want to you get uh, what we have our status or our uh, industries or our economy or our uh, you know nation's uh, prosperity we didn't want it to get impacted so it was more for a preservation now if we for if we continue on that path then let's just preserve what we have then i think it would be a huge mistake you know any nation would be making because uh, if you look at you know uh, just take, if you take an example of apple when they came out with the ipod it was working great and uh, everyone was buying, everyone was very happy, but Apple was not very happy. They wanted to do more and more. So they innovated, they came up with the smartphone. And now smartphone, you know, uh, I mean, there was no need for uh, iPod because, and they saw that the iPod sales started going down and the smartphone sales started picking up. They innovated, they did that, you know, they brought that threat to themselves because they wanted to do something better. They wanted to build something better. So if we, if we are, you know, satisfied in what we have in the form of the current systems, current products, current industries, current models, if we are satisfied with that and if we don't try to make it more efficient, more effective, more affordable, more accountable, accessible, then you know somebody else will do that for us and that is the nature of the challenges the security threat security risk that we are facing from everywhere not just the geospace but cyberspace and space you know with the asteroid mining and with the nano satellites and you know all kinds of things are happening and all kinds of new way of doing things are emerging and they are coming our way so rapidly so the preservation the approach that intelligence agencies and intelligence analysts had so far that let's preserve what we have i don't think that's enough you know to look at it from that perspective for you know the com intelligence community well i guess my my perspective is a little bit different on it i think that they um i i would agree that they are not moving as quickly as they need to i think that there's a general recognition certainly among the, the alumni who i talk to very regularly we have 2,000 alumni, and they're everywhere, and all the intelligence agencies all over the world, and in a lot of, uh, of companies as well. And and what they tell me is very recognition of the problem that you just described. There's there's not a lack of recognition. Um, there is a uh, but but as with everything else in this day and age, it's very difficult to keep up with the pace of just as soon as you're about to roll out a new answer to yesterday's problem, you've got a new problem on the horizon and it, it's coming up very, very quickly. 
This is one of the ways that sort of tie it back to the beginning of our conversation. This is where strategic intelligence actually is designed to help. Uh, and it's why it's so important, because it has the ability, if not to foresee the future with through some sort of magic crystal ball, at least to sort of lay out the scenarios that are likely or unlikely, uh, to sort of highlight some of the major intersections of problems and allow people to perhaps, if not get ahead of it, to at least stay up with this pace of innovation. Um, and so, uh, again, I think that there's a broad recognition of the problem you just described. I don't, I don't think there's very many people who don't feel it uh, on a daily basis. Um, the question becomes what to do about it, and again, the process of deciding what to do about it is fairly ponderous in any sort of bureaucratic organization that by the time you figure that out, there's a new problem on the horizon. I think, I think the speed with which these things are coming at us uh, is is really the, the, the one of the biggest issues. Um, and, and then I would also agree that I think we can improve processes. All that said, I go back to my earlier comments. I think that there's ways to improve the process. I think uh, we can even, even our research, I, I think we've, we've come up with a number of different ways, but I think there's ways to improve that process even more. Um, and, and I'd like to see more effort on, on, rather than just sort of trying to kill these you know, uh, problems one at a time, I'd like to see some more resources put into understanding a process that allows us to improve and improve more readily. I, I, I'm absolutely certain that will include some of the elements that you're talking about, um, but I think we, it deserves a lot more research to understand what exactly that answer is going to look like. It's certainly a question that has, has informed our research agenda here at Mercy Earth for the last 14 years. I'm, again, I'm not suggesting we've solved everything, but I know we've been able to put dents in all of the issues that you're talking about through research, through a sort of an aggressive, focused effort to understand how to make the process better. And and I, I think I think more efforts in that line could could yield would almost certainly yield more results. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I, I think collective intelligence is the way to go to solve a lot of these problems because it requires new way of thinking, new way, uh, new processes, new tools, new technologies to come up with a better answer so that, you know, the speed at which uh, all these uh, threats that are coming our way, we are able to, you know, respond to that effectively. But let's talk about, you know, uh, I think we are coming uh, close to one hour and uh, mm -hmm. uh, we there is so much to talk about but one hour doesn't do justice to such an important topic so let me ask you what concerns do you have as you do all this research and as you have been training and as you have been uh, participating in this intelligence uh, strategic intelligence uh, initiatives and efforts all across nations where do you see the challenges and what concerns you the most so I think the, the, the challenges are really twofold, and we've already touched on them in our conversation. And the first one is training the analyst and improving the analytic process through some sort of deliberative practice and, and a research coupled with a research program that helps us improve that process. Understand, here's where we're failing. What should we be doing to fix that process? So that's the first thing that I would really like to see more of, because I see analysts doing mainly intuitive analysis. That's mostly what people do. And there are better ways to do that. And there are some structures that don't, that take advantage of intuition. I'm not suggesting intuition is, 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 is a bad thing, um, but that take advantage of in, intuition and augment it with that. And some of them are very simple, and but they're not widely known and it's disappointing. Um, and then the second thing is, is that, and we were just talking about this, this is this education of the decision makers and understanding what intelligence is, and and what it can and can't do for your organization and sort of and then and that and for the decision maker to demand uh, a, a more uh, to understand what it is intelligence can do so they can demand a more accountable product so they can hold their analyst accountable so they can't fool them and i'm not suggesting that happens a lot but if you don't know how to evaluate somebody you're not in a position to know whether they do it right or not you know you can't say you did it correctly and therefore, uh, you know, you, you, I, you know, this is great. This is the kind of stuff that helps me. And so I think that there's an education process, uh, less so on the decision maker side, but important, uh, but also on the analytic side, really needs to sort of start to work more aggressively to understand how to, how, what is the nature of the intelligence problem? How does it differ from the operational problem? 
the tools of the MBA, the tools of the accountant, rarely, they, they occasionally do, but rarely are they really useful with intelligence style problems. And then what are the things that actually work? And then how do we improve that process? How do we, how do we think that through? So the, those are the, I mean, I'm an educator and, and, an, and, a, and an analyst. And so I tend to focus on, on the training and the education aspects of this, but I think those are the places if we can improve that, I think we can make big differences um, with, with a fairly small investment in resources, time and money. Yes, yes, very true, very true. Now, you're also the founder of Sources and Matter Games that explores the intersection between games, education and intelligence. Sure. What would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners about the benefits of the game and about your, you know, individual as well as the collective effort of your university towards strategic intelligence? Well, on the game-based learning side, there's a, that's a whole, we, we probably need a whole other hour to talk about that. But what I have seen through my application of games in the classroom and my development of games that teach intelligence concepts is that game-based learning can really be a much more effective way to teach a particular topic than traditional lecture or discussion. Um, and and as, a, as, a, as a professor or as a teacher, you really want to have sort of a wide variety of tools that you can use in the classroom. Game-based learning ought to be one of them. Uh, there are some downsides that the game-based learning community doesn't always talk about, like the amount of time it may take to do these kinds of games. But frankly, there is, in some cases, nothing better that will teach a particular topic than a game. And so uh, one of the things that I do for clients uh, that come to me is help them develop games to teach particular intelligence topics. Um, so for example, uh, uh, we, we have a collection management problem we need a game that helps introduce that topic to to uh, to our analyst or to our collection uh, of personnel. Uh, can you help us design a game that do, does that? Absolutely, that's exactly the kind of thing that I, I do. Um, and then, I'm sorry, what was your second question? What would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners about uh, your efforts, individual efforts, as well as the collective effort of uh, the university in uh, towards the strategic intelligence? So one of the things that I would say there is, at least with, from our perspective, we've gotten really good at that. <laughs> uh, we've done hundreds, I'm not kidding you, hundreds of strategic intelligence projects for, if I rattled off the list of the names, and, and, and for the most part I can't rattle off the list of the names, but if I rattle off the list of the names, you'd recognize 90% of them. Um, we've done these projects for people. People have actually turned around and gone out and made money with it if they're businesses. They've implemented policies as a result of this. They've identified new threats, new trends that they didn't know about. Um, and, and, and we do that at a very low cost. Uh, we employ students overseen by graduate students and faculty, um, but we use all of the things that I've been talking about here, these new processes that we've developed, we use all of that to deliver that at a, at a very reasonable cost, at a very high quality. And I think that's the, the mere fact that there's a place that you can go and get that kind of stuff um, is something that ought to be interesting to your, to your audience. Yes, definitely. No, that is uh, uh, so very necessary and to have a affordable, cost-effective solution like that and that also that is effective. That is what the global community needs. So thank you so much, Professor Wheaton, for participating in Risk Roundup today and we appreciate your thoughtful insight on the strategic intelligence and our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the understanding you provided on the challenges facing the intelligence community, the changing nature of the strategic intelligence and also possible solutions. So even if a single individual or entity is able to come up with ideas to uh, come have an effective process, tools, technology to accurately measure strategic intelligence, to innovate, to develop intelligence systems for the complex challenges facing intelligence community and manage its associated security risk based on the understanding they received from this discussion we had today. The Risk Roundup Dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Wonderful. So today, across nations, the approach to strategic intelligence seems to be fragmented, outdated, ineffective, and mostly about now providing information that makes Nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia decision makers feel better sometimes. And rather than bringing 
true insights, the true interconnected and interdependent CGS security risk insight, CGS security risk intelligence insight and opportunity. And this to us is a cause of great concern. Risk groups, cybersecurity, geosecurity and space security risk research centers are created for these very reasons to identify, evaluate and manage the risk facing NGIOA and CGS, that is again, nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it's not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts fit into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk conducts, to watch the risk conduct webcast or to hear the risk conduct podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com. And do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Arnab, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.